I usually share this tidbit during the announcement time, but uh, it is Family Sunday, so as you look around, you'll notice our younglings, as I call them, are here worshiping with us, and I really want to encourage our parents and families that uh, sometime today, you'll, you'll take a moment and share with them a little bit more about offering and about communion and about worship and why, why we do the things we do. It's one of the things that's real important to us is that our young people see by the example of the things we do, the aspects of worship. Um, and it's also why today's sermon, if you will, uh, that will focus on the events of Palm Sunday is going to be just a little bit different. Uh, I've chosen to do this in kind of a, a story manner. And so I just ask that you would stay with me because we're going to look at the whole week, not just the triumphal entry. Uh, there's a story about two brothers. They lived on adjoining farms. They had lots and lots of property. They were very wealthy. And one day they had a very deep quarrel. Uh, they argued about something. And whatever it was, they just uh, they stopped trying to be brothers. They, they had practiced sharing their resources and things like that. That practice came to a screeching halt. There was nothing left between them but bitterness for one another. And one morning, a brother, we'll call him John, he answered a knock on his door. And it was a carpenter of all things. And the carpenter asked him, hey, do you have any work? Is there anything I can do for you on your farm? And John said, you know, there is something you can do. And he took this carpenter out to where the two properties came together. And and he showed him how the other brother had taken a bulldozer and created a creek right through the middle of the meadow that came between the two properties. And he says, you know, I know he did this to make me angry as a, as a sign of our separation. He dug this creek with his bulldozer where this meadow used to be. He said, he did this to make me angry. What I want you to do, he said, money is no object. I want you to build me a wall, tall and long, along my property so that I never have to see him or his property ever again. The carpenter said, are you, you sure that's what you want? I'm, I'm a master carpenter. He said, I, I want a wall. And he got busy the next day, early in the morning. He worked all day long and into the early evening. And he reports back to John to show him the work that he had done. As they walked out, John was surprised and slightly angry because what he noticed was there was no fence. The carpenter did not build a fence. Instead, he used his skill and he built a bridge over the creek instead of a fence. And his brother happened to be out on his side of the property trying to figure out what all the commotion was. And he realized that his brother had had a bridge built. And he was so moved by that, that his brother would do something like that, that the two brothers ended up meeting in the middle of the bridge and embraced. Forgot all about their quarrel, their argument. They saw the carpenter packing up his tools. They said, hey, can you stay a bit, a, a little while longer? We, we both have work that we'd like for you to do. And the carpenter replied, I'm sorry, but I have other bridges to build. And we can learn a valuable lesson from this carpenter. It also happens to be one of the foundational points of reconciliation. If you haven't been paying attention during the month, um, it's grace. It's one of the valuable focal points. The foundation of reconciliation comes to grace. Speaking of carpenters and grace, there was another carpenter who taught us a few things about grace. His name is Jesus. He not only taught us about grace, but he offered grace all the way to the cross. In his first sermon in Matthew chapter 5, 
He sets the tone for his whole mission. He lets everyone know from the very beginning of his ministry what's expected of them and what he is prepared to do. And there's a section in his sermon. It's the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 48, where Jesus sets a standard for his audience then, and he also sets a standard for us today. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. Jesus says, You have heard that it is said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. Do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I would like for you to keep those things in mind that I just read. Walking the extra mile, turning the other cheek. Keep those things in mind as I talk through the events of the last week of Jesus' life. It all started with what we call Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the Sunday before Jesus' death. And he, he began his trip to Jerusalem knowing that soon he would lay down his life for the sins of the world. And nearing the, the village of Bethphage, he, went, he sent two of his disciples ahead to look for a donkey, a colt that had never been ridden, if you will. And Jesus instructed his disciples to untie the animals, the donkey and its colt, and bring them to him. He said, as a matter of fact, if anyone asks you about this, you tell them the Lord needs them. And that's exactly what they did. And they brought the, the donkey and its young colt to Jesus. And Jesus sat on the young donkey and slowly and humbly he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, fulfilling the ancient prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. As you know, maybe you know the story, maybe you don't, but as they came into Jerusalem, the crowds welcomed him. They first began putting their, their coats and their cloaks down on the ground. And then they started to wave palm branches in the air, shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They were shouting this and they were waving palm branches and putting them down. And, and here it is on Palm Sunday. And Jesus has this great entrance into Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that he and his disciples spent that night in Bethany, a town about two miles east of Jerusalem. In all likelihood, they stayed in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, whom Jesus had just recently raised from the dead. And then on Monday morning, Jesus returned to Jerusalem with his disciples. Along the way, Jesus saw a fig tree that, that had no fruit on it. And he cursed that fig tree because it failed to bear fruit. Now, some scholars believe the cursing of this fig tree represented God's judgment on the spiritually dead religious leaders of Israel. Others believe the symbolism here is extended to any believers, demonstrating that genuine faith is more important than just outward religiosity, if you will. 
I believe that true living faith must bear spiritual fruit in a person's life. And that's the example we can get from that story. And when Jesus arrived at the temple, he found the courts full of corrupt money changers. Some people say, well, what's, what's the big deal? They, people traveled from all over the place to come. They had to buy their animals for sacrifice. They had to do these certain things. That wasn't the issue. The issue was that the money changers were corrupt, that they were stealing from people. They were being dishonest. And Jesus began overturning the tables and clearing the temple, saying, the scriptures declare, my temple will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. On Monday evening, it's believed that Jesus stayed in Bethany again with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. On Tuesday morning, Jesus and his disciples returned to Jerusalem. Yes, on the way back to Jerusalem, they passed the withered fig tree that Jesus had taught them. And he paused and he taught them about faith at that point. As they approached the temple, in the temple, the religious leaders on Tuesday were aggressively challenging Jesus' authority, attempting to ambush him to create an opportunity for his arrest, but they just couldn't. Jesus answered their questions. He evaded their traps. He actually pronounced harsh judgment on them. He called them blind guides. He said, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and impurity. He said, outwardly, you look like righteous people. But inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy, with lawlessness. Snakes, he called them sons of vipers. He asked, how will you escape judgment? You can read about that in Matthew chapter 23, verses 24 through 33. And I bring that to your attention because as we approach next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, I want to ask you the same question. You all look really nice on the outside. Everybody took a bath, deodorant, perfume, little hair gel, got scrubbed up for Sunday. My question is, is it just so you look good? We do not want to be a whitewashed tomb. We do not want to be something that resembles death and emptiness and hypocrisy. See, as Christians, we're called to be something that reflects Jesus Christ. And not just on the surface, not just because we're spit polished on Sunday, but because we act the same way on Monday and Tuesday and throughout the week. Later that afternoon, Jesus left the city and he went with his disciples to the Mount of Olives and it overlooks Jerusalem just to the east of the temple. Here, Jesus gave what Bible scholars call the Olivet Discourse. That's a fancy word for saying he sat on the Mount of Olives and talked. (laughs) It's an elaborate prophecy, though, about the destruction of Jerusalem, about the end of the age. He taught in parables. He used symbolic language about what was to come, including his second coming and final judgment. Scripture says that would indicate that on Tuesday it was also the day that Judas Iscariot, while Jesus is is teaching and preaching and, and sharing what is to come, Judas is negotiating with the Sanhedrin to betray Jesus. After a tiring day of confrontation and warnings about the future, Jesus and his disciples once again go back and stay in Bethany. 
I don't know if you've ever looked at the triumphal entry. Usually, like I said, we just stop short of it's Sunday and Jesus comes in and everybody's loving him. But when you look at that whole week, we call it the Passion Week. What do you know about Wednesday of the Passion Week? Anyone? The Bible doesn't talk about Wednesday. I call it Silent Wednesday. We have words for all the other days. I thought we should have Silent Wednesday. The Bible doesn't say what the Lord did on Wednesday. Some scholars speculate that after the first two exhausting days in Jerusalem, he's already caused quite a stir that he and his disciples spent that day resting in Bethany in in anticipation of the Passover and preparing for the Passover supper. It was about two miles east of Jerusalem. Like I said earlier, Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, lived there. They were close friends of Jesus, probably hosting them during his final days in Jerusalem. You need to remember, too, that this is the place where Jesus revealed to the disciples and the world that he had power over death. This is the place where he raised Lazarus from the grave. And it was just interesting to me that he spent the last week not in Jerusalem overnight, but back at the place where he first showed success over death. After seeing this, this miracle of Lazarus raising from the grave, the Bible tells us that many people in Bethany believed that Jesus was indeed the Son of God and that many people put their faith in Him. And also in Bethany is where Lazarus' sister Mary had lovingly anointed the feet of Jesus with expensive perfume. I got to thinking about that a little bit because it's, it was prior to this final week of Jesus' life that Mary washes Jesus' feet with this expensive perfume. And then it's here in just a second where they're at the Passover meal and Jesus washes his disciples' feet. It was just something I hadn't noticed before. We can only speculate about what happened on Wednesday, but I think it's fascinating to consider that Jesus spent his final quiet day with his closest friends, his closest followers. And then Thursday... This is the day where this Holy Week takes a somber turn. From Bethany, Jesus sent Peter and John ahead to the upper room in Jerusalem to make preparations for the feast, for the Passover. That evening after sunset, that's where Jesus washed the feet of His disciples and then said to them, Go and do as I have done. By performing this humble act of service, Jesus demonstrates by example how we are to love one another and serve one another. And then Jesus shared the feast of Passover with his disciples. And he says this to them, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. He goes on, he says, For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I think this might have been somewhat of a light bulb moment for some of them. As the Lamb of God, as Jesus was about to fulfill the meaning of the Passover by giving His body to be broken and His blood to be shed in sacrifice, freeing us from sin and death. And it's during this Last Supper that Jesus establishes the Lord's Supper, communion, what we did today, instructing His followers to continually remember His sacrifice by sharing in in bread and juice the fruit of the vine. Later, Jesus and his disciples leave the upper room. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays in agony to God the Father. 
Luke's gospel says in, in chapter 22, verse 44, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. I don't know if you have ever prayed like that before. I haven't. I guess I'm grateful that I've never really had a reason to. But when you think about that while Jesus is praying and he's so concerned with his prayer, he's so concerned with the task that's been given to him that his, his, sweat, his sweat is like drops of blood falling to the ground and it's where he finds his closest friends asleep while they're supposed to be keeping watch. Late that evening in Gethsemane, Jesus is then betrayed with a kiss by Judas Iscariot and arrested by the Sanhedrin. And they're trying to take him out and one of his disciples jumps to action to defend him and cuts off the ear of one of the guys that comes to arrest Jesus. And Jesus said, no, put your sword away. Puts the man's ear back on and then says, I've been with you sitting in the synagogue and you've not come to me. But you come with sticks and clubs and you arrest me at night. And they took him away. He was taken to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, and the whole council had gathered to begin making their case against Jesus, an innocent man. And in the early morning hours, as his trial was getting underway, Peter denied knowing him three times. And then the rooster crowed. And then it's Friday. Good Friday, as we call it. I'm not sure why we gave it that name. Good Friday is the most difficult day of the Passion Week. Christ's journey turns treacherous. It turns extremely painful in these final hours leading to his death. Side note about Good Friday is according to Scripture, that's when Judas Iscariot, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, was so overcome with remorse and guilt that he hanged himself early Friday morning. And before the third hour, which was around 9 a.m., Jesus endures the shame of false accusations. He endures the shame of condemnation, the mockery, beatings, abandonment from his friends. After a multiple unlawful trials, he's sentenced to death by crucifixion. One of the most horrible and disgraceful methods of capital punishment known. And before he is led away, soldiers spit on him. They tormented him. They mocked him. They pulled his hair. They pierced him with a crown of thorns. And then they made Jesus carry his own cross to Calvary, where again he was mocked, insulted, as Roman soldiers nailed him to a wooden cross, as they gambled for his clothes. And it's on that cross that Jesus spoke seven final statements. Think back to what I shared with you in Matthew chapter 5 at the beginning. His first words were, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Roughly three years prior to this point in Jesus' life, he preached a sermon where he said to people, turn the other cheek, walk the extra mile. Don't just love your enemy. Don't just love your friend. Don't, or don't just love your family. Don't just love your neighbor. Don't just love your, your friend. But love your enemy. He said these things. And then on Good Friday, He illustrates them. 
He could have done any number of things going to the cross. Scripture says He could have called angels to come and and deliver Him and protect Him. And instead, He calls on God to forgive Him. To forgive them. To forgive the ones who did all these things to Him. I don't know about you, but I think one of the worst things you can do to somebody is to spit on them. My family will tell you, I have this thing about being sneezed on, about being spit on, coughed on. It's <laughs> it just happened. I just have this thing. You could do just about anything to me. I, I would, <laughs> total side note, I was in a funeral. I wasn't even preaching. I was just sitting there and I had a short sleeve shirt on and I had my arm on the chair and Dylan was with me. And the preacher is praying at the funeral and the lady behind me sneezed during the prayer all over my arm. It was bad news. It was all I could do to contain myself. And I was just like, oh, I can't believe this just happened. They spit on him. She did it. It was an accident. And I was like, still angry. They spit on Jesus. They hit him with sticks. They beat him. And the first thing he says, hanging on the cross, is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He lived out what he shared, what he preached. He had a conversation with a thief on the cross. The thief said, take me with you. He said, I promise that you'll be in paradise with me. And then his last words were, Father, Into your hands, I commit my spirit. The Bible says then about the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus breathed his last and he died. One of my favorite parts about this story is that by 6 p.m. Friday evening, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus' body down from the cross and they lay it in a tomb. And you may think, well, why would that be your favorite part? We'll get to that in just a second. But what you need to know is on Saturday, Jesus' body lay in a tomb where it was guarded by Roman soldiers throughout the day. Saturday was the Sabbath. And when the Sabbath ended at 6 p.m., his body was ceremonially treated, ceremonially treated for burial with spices purchased by Nicodemus. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with spices and long sheets of linen cloth. The reason that's encouraging to me is because Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were both members of the Sanhedrin. They were both members of the court that Judas Iscariot visited and cut a deal with to betray Jesus. They were members of the court that condemned Jesus to death. You may recall Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he went to see Jesus at night and asked him what he should do to be saved. And Jesus told him about salvation. And for, for a time, these men lived as secret followers of Jesus, afraid to make a public profession of faith because of their position in the Sanhedrin and the Jewish community. And here's a time now where they were both deeply affected by Christ's death. And they boldly came out of hiding, risking their reputations, risking their lives, risking their families, and saying, because they had realized that Jesus was indeed the long-awaited Messiah. And they were unapologetic about it. Together, these two men go from being in hiding, being secret followers of Jesus, to wide out in the open, 
And they boldly came out. And together they cared for Jesus' body. Together they prepared it for burial. And while his physical body lay in the tomb, Jesus had indeed paid the penalty for sin by offering the perfect, spotless sacrifice. He conquered death spiritually and physically, securing for us eternal salvation. Amen? You know, God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life that you inherited. A ransom was paid not with gold and silver, but He paid a ransom with the lifeblood of Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. That's what Peter tells us. Earlier, we looked at Matthew 5 and Jesus showed us how we should walk an extra mile, how we should turn the other cheek, how we should take care of others. All things that point to grace as a foundation of reconciliation. But I want to challenge you this week to read through Colossians chapter 1, especially verses 13 through 23. I'm going to share it with you now, but I want you to look at it later because I want you to know that you were thought of every step Jesus took on the way to the cross. Why would he do this? Why would he endure this torture and this punishment that he didn't deserve? Because it was all part of God's salvation plan. Listen, it says this, starting with verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Verse 17 says, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on heaven, or excuse me, things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed, and this is the key, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. You see, as as we look at the foundation of reconciliation, it becomes clear that Jesus, the one and only Son of God, paid the price for your sins and my sins with His precious lifeblood. And with this act of submitting to the Father's will, the humble carpenter from Nazareth, with his life, built the bridge that connects us with our Creator. And make no mistake, there's only one way to the Father. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light. And no one will enter the kingdom of God except through Him. You see, at the heart of reconciliation is grace. God's grace. 
where we had crafted an impossible, impassable space between us and God because of our sin, Jesus used the cross to build a bridge of grace to reconcile us with a sacrifice of His life. A few weeks ago, I shared with you a spoken word video by Amina Brown. And I want you to listen to this again as she speaks of Jesus, the foundation of reconciliation. Did you hear that? Were you paying attention? Christ died on the cross. Spoiler alert. He also rose from the dead three days later. But that's next week's message. Uh, By the way, I gave you those cards to go and give to someone. Um, If you give that to your waiter or waitress today, make sure it's with a good tip. All right. You don't want to give them like two bucks and then be like, come to church. They'll be like, you're cheap. So bless them and invite them to come in here. Uh, and and receive a spiritual blessing as well next week. Christ rose from the dead. And in doing this, He extended an invitation to us that we can know the God of all creation. Jesus, He offered us love when we knew no peace. He offered us relationship when all we knew how to do was keep and break a bunch of rules. This is the resurrection that in His death, We have come to know life. 
that we can freely offer our life as a reflection of Him. Listen, if all He did was die for us and was that final sin sacrifice, if that's all Jesus did, that would be enough for us to live for Him. But He didn't stay dead. But if that's all He did was to be that final sacrifice, it would be enough. I want to extend an invitation today for you to respond to God's Word. I know that today's message may have been kind of like drinking through a fire hose as we looked at the whole last week of Jesus' life and all that He did on His way to the cross. It wasn't a traditional Palm Sunday message. But as we come to our response time this morning, you are now in full knowledge that Jesus Christ offered Himself as the perfect and final sacrifice for your sins. And my only question is, if you believe everything I shared with you today, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins, if this is true, what are you willing to do about it? Are you truly willing to live for Him? And maybe for you to do that, your response to God's Word is to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Maybe your response, Christian, is to repent, to rededicate yourself to being the reflection of Christ that you agreed to be when you were first baptized. Maybe you've drifted a little bit. Maybe your response is to simply ask for prayer and direction and accountability from the elders. They're here this morning. They would love to pray with you and your family. Whatever your response is, will you stand and sing our response song and respond accordingly to God's word? It's been great to be here with you all this morning, to worship with you, to share the events of the Passion Week with you, hopefully to challenge you to think a little bit differently about the things that happened that week. And as you go through this week, you'll maybe consider those things because it is now time for us to go. So as you go, go with the mindset of Christ. Go prepared to walk the extra mile this week for someone. Go into this week with your mind made up that everything is forgivable. Do that now so that when you're offended this week, you'll have the mindset of Christ and you'll be able to say, Father, forgive them. Go this week Prepared to be a bridge builder. Go with the mission of Christ on your mind, fresh on your mind, and with grace on your heart. As you go this week, go to win others for Jesus Christ. Go being committed to grow in His Word yourself. And think on those things as you go this week. Will you sing this last song with us?